Well, hey, church, it is good to be together. Glad you're here for our second week. Glad you asked. And we really are glad you asked. And I think God is glad when we ask questions. And that is what we're talking about in this series. Um, hope you're paying attention to all that stuff Janet just talked about. We do have a lot going on as we're kicking off uh, this new year. Uh, I am repping today the new Love Month t-shirt. Don't forget, Love Month is coming in February. That is a month filled with service all throughout our community. Uh, we really, and our goal for Love Month is that everybody in the church participate in at least one project. There are practical, tangible ways that we can bless our community. Uh, sign up, start this week. You can go down to the atrium to learn more or look on the website for all the information you need about Love Month. Call the church. We want you plugged in with Love Month coming up in February. Also, I'll just second what Janet said about the gathering this Saturday. That's for anybody who's serving and leading on any of our teams or anybody who wants to be serving and leading. We'll be talking about uh, the vision and strategy of the church and getting real practical with lots of ways you can serve and get plugged in. So be here Saturday, 8.30 for that. All right, let's ask some questions. Because questions, as scary as they may seem, are actually an opportunity to strengthen the foundation of our faith. That's and there are all kinds of questions, right? We've got uh, real academic questions, kind of ones that are super thinky. Uh, we're going to do kind of a one, a one like that today. We've got some that are super personal, right? They're super emotional. They're super feely. Uh, we've got a lot of questions like that. Uh, last week, uh, we started the asking questions. Remember, the way this series works is we're going to do it short up here at the beginning of the year, just one more week, and then we're going to come back to this series later in the year, but then it's going to be built on the questions you've submitted. So if you've got questions, just write them on your connection card. If you're worshiping online, you can do the online connection card or email the church, info at fcc-jc.org. Ask us your questions. That's how we're going to build the rest of this series later in the year. And I will, I want to comment, we got a lot of questions last week, great questions. And even though it, it's not the main questions I'm going to talk about today, I want to talk about two kinds of questions we got last week that I just feel like I couldn't let wait months before I commented on. We got lots of questions that were related to grief. And that makes sense to all of us, doesn't it, right? That in times of grief, we, we have questions, questions for God. And, and, and we're going to talk about some of those later in the year because enough of you asked about them. They definitely will be on our list. But I can't wait to do this. I just want to say, if you're in a place where you've got questions related to grief and you are, you are in a time of grief right now, I want to make sure you know about Grief Share. It's a ministry we do. We run it all the time. The next group launches in February. It'll be in the bulletin and announcement stuff in the weeks to come. But I just, I saw all those questions, and the first thing I thought was, man, you got to get to Grief Share. Some of you out here, I, I, I see, I know you've actually gone, done Grief Share, and you could give a testimony of what a meaningful and wonderful ministry that is. So if that's you, if you're in a time of grief, call the church office, call Lisa Blankenship, ask for info about Grief Share. The other questions I, I want to comment on today, even though they're not mainly today's question, we got three different questions, all anonymous. One of them was somebody set it on my music stand when I was away from my music stand that started like this with some variation on this. Can God still love me? And then they all kind of ended differently, even though, and 
Some talked about their past, and some talked about their identity, and some talked about what they were doing or whatever. They ended differently, but they all started, can God still love me? And again, that's not the question, and it's not my main focus today, but I just want you to tell you, whatever you put at the end of that question, can God still love me, however you end that question, even though whatever you wrote, and, if you, and again, I don't even know what service they were, came from. They were all anonymous, so I'm doing this all three services, because I don't want those, if, if I knew who it was, I would call you and tell you the answer, but since I don't know who wrote them, I'm telling everybody the answer. If, if you've got a question that starts, can God still love me? Does God still love me? Even though whatever you put at the end of that sentence, the answer is yes. Okay? Yes. Yes. Uh, don't take my word for it. Go to Romans 7 and 8. You read Romans 7. Well, Paul talks about just, he's a mess of a dude. And then you read Romans 8, and he just says, but God's love for me is un." Stoppable, And he goes on and on and on. And you read Romans 7 and 8 as many times as you need to till you know the answer. And if you want to talk to me about why I'm so sure, like if you're like, but what about the thing I put at the end of my question? Can God still love me even though? And you're like, what about the thing that I wrote there? If you want to reach out to me, you call me. I don't know who you are or I'd call you because you got to know the answer is yes. Now, the way in which I answered that question by pointing you to Romans 7 and 8 is what leads me to today's question. And today's question is just this. Why do we put so much trust in the Bible? Why do we think the Bible is reliable? Why do we think the Bible reveals truths about God and the world and the cosmos and Jesus and all that? I mean, because the world has lots of holy books, right? Why this holy book? I'll just let you know, I don't trust any of the other holy books that are out there. I think they're all full of false and exaggerated claims. I know that may sound harsh to say, but it's just true. I'm actually rather skeptical when it comes to holy books. All the holy books of all of human existence, I don't think are true, except for this one. I'm, I'm pretty skeptical. And so, so why is that, right? Maybe you've never asked this question. If, if you haven't, I'm sort of sorry because you will now, but you know, uh, but, but maybe you have. I, I, this question can come up in lots of ways. Maybe it'll come to you because a skeptical friend asks you, how do you know the Bible is true? Like, couldn't have they just made it all up, right? Maybe the question will just occur to you on its own. That's what happened to me. I was 10 years old at a sleepover at Michael White's house. We'd had such a great time, and we'd eaten amazing foods. His mom was a great cook, and we were having so much fun, and I was lying on the floor in Michael White's bedroom. There were four or five of us there, and we kind of finished all our silliness, and we're kind of finally drifting off to sleep. And, our, and, and, and I'd been reading the, the Lord of the Rings books recently, you know, um, by J.R.R. Tolkien. You know, they made movies out of them recently. Some Maybe you watched the movies, you read the books. And I was thinking about this amazing world that this creative author made up and he made up the languages and he made up the people and he made up the locations and he made up everything about it and he made up this great amazing epic story and then just out of the blue I don't know where it came from I thought what if that's how the Bible was written like what if we've just forgotten and it was so long ago and some just super creative person just made the whole thing up and just wrote the whole thing like, I mean, if Tolkien could do it, you know, maybe, maybe that's where it came from. So you see, this question can come from lots of places. It can, it can come from a skeptical friend or a professor in college, or it can come from the floor of Michael White's bedroom when you're 10 years old and just lying there trying to fall asleep. 
And it's a good question. And it's a question that, that, that deserves a good answer. Now, a couple things you got to know about the Bible is the Bible actually isn't just one book. It's actually lots of books written in lots of different time periods by lots of different authors. So you actually can't even give one answer to this question, why should I trust the Bible? Because you have to give lots of different answers because the, the historical verification for the different books depends on their authorship and all this stuff. So for our purposes, I'm going to not try to answer the whole question. Though I'm barely going to get through the sermon I have planned. I'm going to just answer, uh, I'm going to focus on the New Testament. And the reason I'm going to focus on the New Testament is because that is where the central claims of our faith are. The ones about Jesus and who he is and that he died on a cross and he rose from the dead. And the New Testament is kind of, if it's true, it kind of, it offers a great validation for the rest of the Bible. And I'm not even going to do the whole New Testament because that's too much too. I'm really going to focus on the Gospels and, and some of the early letters of the New Testament. And, and for these books... I want to tell you that I trust these books because of four things that make them different than all the other holy books out there in human history that I don't trust. They have a unique authorship. They have a unique source for their authority. They have a unique logic to their reliability. And they have a unique testimony about the world. Let me tell you what I mean by a unique authorship. There's kind of a myth out there about the authorship of the Bible. Maybe you've gotten this myth stuck in your head. That the way the Bible was written is some biblical book author like Mark or Paul or Matthew was in their study one day with a piece of paper and a pen and all of a sudden God took hold of their hand and just wrote this book. And they're like, oh my goodness, a, a holy book has emerged. And they went to the people and they said, God has given me a book. Maybe you kind of have that vision in your head, that it just kind of emerged out of the interaction with the Spirit one day. Well, if you have that idea in your head, I wouldn't fault you for it, because that actually is the origin story of every other holy book in human experience. Uh, it's the origin story for the Quran and the Book of Mormon, for instance. In both cases, um, the authors of those books claim to have gone into a cave and met the angel Gabriel. In the case of the Quran, uh, the angel Gabriel is said to have dictated the Quran. In the case of the Book of Mormon, the angel Gabriel is said to have given Joseph Smith a bunch of golden tablets that he then transcribed into the Book of Mormon. But they had these private experiences of spiritual revelation that nobody else saw or can verify, and from those, these books emerged. Uh, uh, the, the, the great texts of Buddhism emerged out of uh, the great teacher Siddhartha, had experienced a, 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 a spiritual and wisdom enlightenment. He saw truths nobody else could see, and out of that he wrote the great tenets of Buddhism. So the other great holy books of human history do emerge. One man has a profound religious experience, and out of that they write a book and tell the rest of us we ought to believe it. We should just take their word for it. And so maybe you think, oh, that's probably how the Bible got written, too, is, you know, one person had a profound experience, and they said, just take my word for it. But that's precisely not how the Bible was written. The Bible was written as a public process about public events that were publicly verified. For instance, look how Luke describes the process of writing the Gospel of Luke. Many have undertaken to drop an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. So he says, I'm not even the only one. Lots of people have written down all that Jesus stuff. 
just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. That's how Luke describes writing the gospel. Do you see how completely different that is from one dude has a spiritual experience that the rest of us just have to believe him? This is how God works now. We're just supposed to take their word for it? He says, lots of people know what happened. So I read the other writings. I researched the eyewitnesses. I investigated the stories. I brought my skepticism to the table. And this is the stuff that I think definitely happened. I want you to know the certainty of the things you have been taught. And this is the same guy who wrote the book of Acts. And for the book of Acts, he was there for lots of it. Lots of the book of Acts is written in the first person. He says, and then we did this, and then we did this. He was there for it. Uh, The gospel of John. The gospel of John ends in this way. And I'm going to start at the end of a story, but then I'll just transition right into the very end of the book. And you'll see why I do that. Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. I just want to look at that verse real carefully. Can you see how there are two groups involved in that verse? There's the disciple who wrote down all the stuff he remembered happening. And there's this other group of people who says, oh yeah, and that's all legit. How could they have done that? Well, only if they also were eyewitnesses to many of those events. Or they themselves had known eyewitnesses and had heard people verify these events. These are, this is a public authorship process of public events. It goes on, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose even the whole world would not have room for all the books that would be written. They're like, yeah, we know this stuff happened. In fact, we know tons of other stories about Jesus that we're not going to bother writing down. And we today were kind of like, we sort of wish you would, because we'd like to know too. But they're like, nope, this is all we're writing down. We ran out of paper. That's all you get to know about Jesus. Okay, so just for starters, the other holy books of human history claim to be the private revelation to one man we're just supposed to take their word for it and i'm sort of a skeptical doofus and so i don't take their word for it i'm gonna prove it the bible makes a completely different claim while yes there are a couple books of the bible that do claim to be a personal accounts of personal visions there are a couple the vast majority of the books of the new testament claim to be a public record of public events verified by the community that either witnessed them or knew the witnesses. Even the letters of Paul, he frequently refers to the people he's writing with. It's not just Paul's private little theology. He's like, I, Paul, and Tychicus, and Timothy, and Mark, and Luke, we're all writing you this letter. Some of them were taught by Paul. Okay, so maybe Paul is the source of what they believe. But many of them weren't taught by Paul. When Paul and Mark write a letter together, 
Paul and Mark were not taught by the same people. In fact, they sort of argued a lot. Mark was taught by Peter and Barnabas, separate eyewitnesses to the witness of Paul, and offered a separate validation of what he's taught. And I just want to say, this is such a huge blessing to my faith. Because if the authorship of Scripture is a public record of public events that are publicly verified by a public community, all of a sudden, that means that the, the, the analysis tools of history can be applied to the text of Scripture. And we can ask questions like, does it hold up as a historical, reliable account of what happened? Unique authorship. The second thing you've got to know is that the New Testament, and especially the, the Gospels and the early letters of Paul, have a unique source for their authority. And this flows out directly from our claims of a unique authorship. If the authorship is one dude in a cave, take his word for it, then the only source of authority is that one dude in a cave. And either we believe the one dude or we don't. But that's not how the scripture works. In fact, the main locus of the authority of the New Testament is not the author, but the church for which they wrote. Mark writes a gospel. And he says, here, look, I wrote a bunch of Jesus stories down on a piece of paper. What do you think? Mark wasn't out there shilling his gospel. It was the church that read the gospel. And like, yeah, Mark, you did a great job. These are the stories I heard Peter tell and James tell. You've done such a great job organizing them. You've got such a way with words. I know all these stories. We should make a copy and give it to some other church. You see, it was the church, the witnessing community, that was the verification for the scripture. Paul, in fact, explicitly appeals to this when he writes to the Corinthian church. He goes out of his way to remind them that he is not the only teacher whose word they take for these amazing claims. And we have to be clear, the Bible is full of amazing claims, right? Dude is the son of God, dies on a cross, rises from the dead. That's a big claim. And so Paul says, don't just take my word for it. You've learned this stuff from Apollos. You've learned this stuff from Peter. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, what I delivered to you as of first importance was also what I received. He says, this isn't my private spiritual knowledge. This is the public claim of the hundreds of people who were eyewitnesses of Jesus. That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures, that he appeared, now here's the list, to Cephas, then to the twelve, then to more than 500 brothers at one time. I know this is annoying, ladies, but the way they counted in the ancient world was you counted all the men. You didn't count the women, which means when he says 500 brothers, that probably means more like a thousand people because there were a bunch of women there that don't get counted. It's not my fault. It's just the way they did it. Don't blame me, okay? More than 500 of the brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as the one untimely born, he appeared to me. He's like, this is a public event I'm telling you about. And why would Paul mention all these other people if not to make the point, hey, you Corinthians, it's 55, maybe 56. We're about 25 years after the death of Jesus. Tons of these people are alive. I know it's crazy talk to say a dude rose from the dead, but don't take my word for it. Go meet some of the eyewitnesses. And that's exactly what Luke did, of course, right? Luke, who was a disciple of Paul at the time, he's like, okay, 
I'm going to go meet some of these eyewitnesses. And sure enough, he verified Paul's story. He goes on, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle. I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I work harder than any of them, though it's not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. So this isn't my like secret sermon about the risen Lord. It's what all of us preach. Whether you heard it from them or you heard it from me, I don't care. It's the same message. Again, we could go back to the very end of the Gospel of John. What's the source of the authority of the Gospel of John in the eyes of the early church? Look, look at that. We're going to look at, those, we're going to look at verse, verse 24 here in just a second. What's the source of the authority? Is it the, the, the apostle who testifies? Or is it the church that verifies? Look at the verse, verse 24. This is the disciple who testifies about these things and who wrote them down. We know that as the sea, they locate the source of the authority of its truth in the verifying community. Not the one or the two or the twelve who said, really, Jesus is alive. But the hundreds who say, yep, he's alive. That's the way it happened. That book that was just written, that letter that was just written, is a reliable testimony of what Jesus did among us, how he taught, and what we now know to be true based on his resurrection. Give you a couple more, one more example here. Um, uh, most scholars think, and, and I'll just to be clear, I'm pretty persuaded by this, um, that Matthew and Luke had access to the Gospel of Mark when they wrote their Gospels. There are lots of intertextual clues that make it seem clear that Luke and Matthew had a copy of Mark around when they were writing their Gospels. This isn't a big deal. We're not stressed out by this because Luke, of course, specifically mentions having access to other written accounts of Jesus. It just sort of seems like one of them was probably the Gospel of Mark. Well, I'll just say, this is so invigorating to my faith. Luke was a second-generation Christian, meaning that he knew lots of eyewitnesses to Jesus who were telling him what they saw Jesus do. And Luke thinks Mark is a reliable testimony. So even within the Bible itself, we have a first-century historical example of an eyewitness community saying, oh, yeah, yeah, that's totally the way it went down. Yeah, remember it just like that. Don't forget that story. That's absolutely a faithful account of what we all remember. The general point I want to make is this, that the authority of the New Testament is different than the authority of the holy books of every other human religion in the world, which all rests on one dude who had a spiritual experience, and the whole authority is in that one dude. We just got to take their word for it. The authority of the Scripture, of the New Testament, is not solely in its authorship. Obviously, authorship matters. But functionally, the authority was grounded in its receivership in a large and diverse community of witnesses over a wide range of geographic regions, some were in Syria, some were in Jerusalem, some were in Turkey, some were in Greece, some were in Egypt, some were in Libya, who when these books were sent, with, sent to them, still in the lifespan of the eyewitnesses, got the book and they could say, oh yeah, that's totally the way it went down. Or they would read the book and be like, no. I've never heard this story. Nobody, no. I, you know, I knew Polycarp, and Polycarp knew John, and Polycarp never told a story like that once. I don't think that happened. And here's the good news. That is exactly how skeptical they were. 
the early church actually rejected more books than they accepted as true. Every once in a while, you'll see on the news, usually it's around Easter, uh, they'll talk about they found a copy of a lost gospel. Have you ever heard one of these? I mean, the gospel of Judas or the gospel of Thomas or the infancy gospel of Thomas. Let us be clear. There is no such thing as a lost gospel. These, were not, these books were not lost. They were rejected and thrown away. And none of these books that are popping up are news to scholars. It's just we don't talk about it in the church, so it sounds like news when they say it breathlessly on the radio or on the news, you know. Um, almost all of these books are actually listed by a guy named Irenaeus in 150 who writes about all the false gospels he's read and why we know they're not reliable and not true. And the reason we know they're not reliable and not true was because the early church was picky. When a story showed up about Jesus that none of the eyewitnesses could verify and no second-generation Christian could verify, they were picky. They were just like, yeah, no, no, I don't think that's a real Jesus story. So there are more gospels they rejected than gospels they affirmed. More letters they rejected than letters they affirmed because they knew it was the responsibility of the church to discern myth from history. And they did just that. Imagine today if some World War II veteran, World War II was a long time ago now, right? How, how do we, none of us know what happened in World War II, right? We weren't there. Imagine some World War II veteran all of a sudden popped up and said, it was aliens. That's how we won the war. I know it was aliens. We wouldn't add that to the history books. We would go ask the eyewitnesses, because actually there are plenty of World War II veterans around. We'd go ask them, was it aliens? And all the other eyewitnesses would say, no, it was not aliens. And so it wouldn't go in the history books. And that is, of course, what happened to the Jesus stories. By, about, by the time you get to 60 and 80 and 100 years after the life of Jesus, sure, stories cropped up that were weird and fantastical and the church had never heard of. And when that happened, the church said, yeah, no, that isn't how it happened. And the stories they kept, the books that they copied and transmitted, were the ones that were verified by the eyewitnesses or verified by the second-generation church who knew the eyewitnesses, and they were picky. All right, unique authorship, which creates a unique authority structure. The authority structure is in the witnessing community, the hundreds of diverse witnesses, which leads to a unique logic of reliability. And here's what I mean by this. Now we're to the claim itself. Are these claims about Jesus and the miracles and the death and the resurrection, are they true? Can they be trusted? Well, given what we know, a historic, remember, what's our historical situation? We're 25 years after the life of Jesus. You've got hundreds of eyewitnesses spread over a wide geographic terrain. They've been driven out by persecution. They're in Syria and Jerusalem and Libya and Egypt. They're not coordinated. They're all working together, yet they all tell the same story. Okay? From all these different authors and all these different places. What are the possibilities? Well, it could be righteous hyperbole. You know, they, one day they said, doesn't it sort of feel like Jesus is alive in our hearts? And the next day they were like, I think we ate breakfast with Jesus this morning. You know, they just sort of, you know, they kind of just exaggerated their warm, fuzzy feelings for Jesus. It could be deception, Right? that they were all just deceived. They were all just so confused. It could be a lie. They made it up. 
or it could be true. That could be the reason. They all tell the same story of a risen Lord and all this stuff. It could have happened. So let's consider these options. Hundreds of people, diverse geographically, spread out by persecution. Is it righteous hyperbole? Well, I'll be honest. If we were just taking one dude's word for it, righteous hyperbole would make sense to me. I can imagine one person grieving Jesus so much that one day they're like, it feels like he's still with me. He is still with me. We ate breakfast this morning. I can imagine one person doing that. But if one person did that, what would the hundreds of others do? They would say, dude, I'm so sorry. I know why it feels like you ate breakfast with Jesus. I sort of feel like that too. It feels like every time I eat, I feel like I'm eating breakfast with Jesus all over again. But you're not. He's gone. Let's go down to the tomb and we'll cry together again and remember how much we love Jesus. Right? They would have set him straight. You know, they wouldn't have propped up that. And it would, that same, that just isn't the way memory works. The other problem with the righteous hyperbole narrative is there just aren't enough years. If the, if, the, if the books we're talking about had been written 200 years after Jesus, okay, uh, so we could say 200 years, a myth develops in this little weird sect of Judaism, and the myth takes over. But we're not talking about 200 years. Corinthians, the, the thing where he just listed all those details, was written in the mid-50s. That's 25 years. I don't think it's righteous hyperbole. Well, maybe they were deceived. Maybe they thought he rose from the dead, but he really didn't. Again, if you wanted to tell me that, that Peter, in his grief, went to the wrong tomb and found an empty tomb on accident, and was like, oh my goodness, Jesus is alive. Okay, I believe one person was deceived, deceived self-deceived. If you want to tell me two people were self-deceived, I believe two people. I believe Peter and Mary and Jesus' mom, Mary. Peter and both Marys were self-deceived. I believe that. But that isn't how the Gospels emerged. It didn't emerge because two people thought Jesus rose from the dead. Again, if two people thought Jesus rose from the dead, the rest of the disciples would have gone. You can imagine the other widows would have gone to Mary and said, Mary, we know, we wish, you know, we've lost sons too. It's awful. But why don't we go to the tomb together and grieve today, Mary? You need to get over this. You need to move past this. You've got other kids to take care of, you know. That's what they would have done. But instead, we have hundreds of people claiming the tomb was empty. They saw him alive. They ate breakfast with him. Hundreds of people claiming that. Spread out, diversely telling the same story. I don't think deception is... I don't think a mass delusion of hundreds of people, the identical delusion spread over a half a continent, is a reasonable theory. So maybe they lied about it. People lie about stuff. When I read the other holy books of the world, I honestly think of that, some of that, they just on purpose made up. Well, I'll just tell you, if it was a lie, it was the dumbest lie ever. What did they get for it? Poverty, persecution, driven out of their homes. Some of them crucified. Some of them killed for it. Penniless, homeless. No personal benefit. It's interesting. Here's a little thing. You contrast this to the other world. Almost every other founder of a world religion. You look at the, the founding of Islam. You look at the founding of, um, of, uh, of, 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 of Mormonism and Joseph Smith. All of them got out of it power, money, and interestingly, they all got lots of women. Uh, you know, Joseph Smith gets all these wives. Muhammad got all these. I'm just, that's a thing. You start a religion. You convince everybody that you're, you get power, money, and women, apparently. But none of these authors got any of that. 
Why would they tell a lie that just gets them persecution? And think of the content of the lie. If, again, if it was a scam, it was the worst scam ever, the content's not even a lie worth telling. Why make up the part about Jesus crying out in weakness on the cross and making Jesus look so pitiful? Why make up the part about women being the first witnesses when women weren't even trusted in court as witnesses to a crime? Why would they teach all that stuff about the first being last and relinquishing power and that leaders should be servants? If they were making up the religion that they would lead, why would they make up the stuff about leaders being servants? And of course, they, the, the, the apostles always describe themselves as despicable people. If Paul was making up a religion, why would he make up a religion where he's the villain? If Peter's making up a religion, why would he make up a religion where he's the betrayer? I mean, where he's the denier. If, if James and John were making up a religion, why would they make up a religion where they are the ones who are the fools and the egomaniacs and look so terrible? I don't think it's a good lie. Not that that many people would conspire together and tell a lie so stupid. In fact, personally, I actually think it's more reasonable to think that a guy rose from the dead. Which I get. As is, is, I know it's crazy. You know, it's weird. Big, it's a big claim. But I think it's more reasonable to think that it was true. That they had seen something amazing, something they could not not talk about, they could not forget, something that changed their theology, changed their community, changed their view of the world. They'd seen something that changed everything, and, all, and hundreds had seen it, and all they could do was respond to what they'd seen. And because what they'd seen was so important, they were, they were sticklers for what they'd seen. And if somebody wrote a book about Jesus, no matter how nice it sounded, if that wasn't what they'd seen, they said, nope, we're not copying that one. We're not distributing that one. That one we're going to throw away. Irenaeus, add it to your list of books we shouldn't read because the, the eyewitnesses didn't verify it. Last thing I want to say. It's unique about the Bible. Among all the holy books of the world that makes me believe this holy book, and even when I'm skeptical about all the rest of them, is the Bible has a unique testimony. Um, all the other holy books testify to the importance of their leader, of the author. This holy book points all the attention away from the authors toward Jesus. Every writer in the New Testament pushes attention away from themselves. Half these books are even anonymous. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're pretty sure that's who wrote them, but they didn't even sign their own work. They pointed away from themselves. They point it away from themselves. The focus is always on Jesus. The, 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 the testimony of the, of, of the New Testament is a testimony of equality. No other holy book does that. Every other holy book divides the world up into kind of the good people and the bad people and the special people and the not special people. This holy book says, no, everybody, everybody is equally loved and everybody is equally in need of a Savior. Everybody's equally a sinner. Everyone's equally able to trust in Christ. Nothing else, nothing else like it. The last thing I would just say that's unique about this holy book that just blows my mind is that the central testimony of the New Testament is not to a theological or philosophical idea as, let's say, the central holy tenets of um, Buddhism, for instance. It's not to a moral theory. Uh, And if it were about morality, I think we should admit... The, the best parts of the morality of most of the world religions are very similar. The, the morality of these books aren't that different. But that isn't the central testimony of the New Testament. The central testimony of the New Testament is of a historical event that happened 25 years prior to the publication of these early letters and these early books. 
If you're going to make up a religion, don't center it on something that had to have happened just 25 years ago. I bet some of you are old enough that you actually remember things that happened 25 years ago. Anybody here, be brave. Raise your hand if you remember something that happened 25 years ago. Come on. Yeah. So why would you make up a religion where most of the people around could say, yeah, no, that, that, that didn't happen. That's, no, other, no other holy book is like that. They either promote philosophy, sometimes beautiful philosophy. I mean, the, Buddhism has some beautiful stuff in it. Or they promote history that's so deep in the ancient past, nobody could ever possibly verify it or not verify it. But not these people. They stake their entire reputations on a historical claim 25 years prior. I'm telling you to only do that if you had reason to believe it happened. And not by yourself, but if lots of people are like, dude, I know it sounds crazy, but we ate breakfast with him. We saw him on the cross, and then we went fishing with him. It's a very unique testimony that lends great credence to its claim. All right, I'm going to land this plane. I think the question of, is the Bible a reliable testimony to the truth about the world is a great question. It's one of the, one of the good questions we've got to ask, okay? Why trust this book and not all the others? Because I'm super skeptical of the holy books of human history. I am. I don't believe hardly any of them. But this one I do. The short version of why is this. It has a unique process of authorship. Public witness about public events. It has a unique structure of authority. You don't just take the one guy's word for it. It's the community that verifies it. Yep, we know this stuff is true. That's what they said. It has a unique logic of reliability. It's too recent, too short a time to be a myth. Too many people to be confusion or deception. It's not a good lie. It might just be true. And it has a unique testimony. That we are all equal at the foot of the cross. And that we all can be saved by Jesus. Nobody else says anything about the total equality of all people and the total possibility that it all could be rescued and restored. I get skepticism. I'm totally with you. Be, like, be super skeptical. But also be honest enough to admit that there's good reason to trust this book. And it matters if you trust this book because if you can trust this book, you can trust the person it points to. And that's the real deal. You actually don't become, just in case you're curious, you, just, you might not even know this, it's serious, you don't become a Christian by trusting the Bible. You can have tons of questions about the Bible and still be a great Christian. Uh, you become a Christian by trusting Jesus. But having confidence in the Bible helps me because the Bible is what points to Jesus. And I think it points there reliably, historically, and verifiably. So you bring your questions. The Bible can stand up to it. It's a historical document. It did not drop from the heavens. My question, the 10-year-old me, lying on Michael White's floor, uh, I now know a hundred reasons that it wasn't just written by some guy in the middle of ages, middle ages and published, like Dante's Inferno or something. But all kinds of archaeological stuff. I mean, that just isn't how it happened. It was written by a community who said they'd seen something. Mainly they said they'd seen someone. And they said that you could trust in him. And if you need to do that, I hope you do that today. At the end of the service, I'll be sitting up here. You can come talk to me about that. 
Don't forget, if you've got more questions, write them down. Right now, I'm just going to pray for you. God, we thank you that the Bible can handle our questions, that you have given us a word that is reliable and testable and verifiable, and we're just we're encouraged by that. I, ha- I pray that maybe somebody here today will trust your word a little more because of what they've learned today. But mainly, I hope that they'll not just trust your word, but they'll trust the one it points to, which is your son, Jesus Christ. And, and maybe they'll take a step in trusting him today. Help us all to do that, God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.